0: Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Over the past year, more economic research has been done around universal basic income. We spoke recently to Rakeem Maboud from the Roosevelt Institute about their analysis of what impact a national basic income would have on the U.S. economy. But there's a more recent analysis on basic income that hasn't received as much attention just yet. And that's coming out of the District of Columbia. Just a few weeks ago, the DC Budget Office released an economic and policy impact statement on providing every resident of the district with a minimum guaranteed income, looking at various income levels and ways that could be accomplished. Today we have uh,
1: the team that spearheaded that analysis. So we've got Jen Budoff, council budget director of the Washington DC City Council. Uh, Councilmember David Grasso and the two primary authors of the study, Susanna Groves and John McNeil. Welcome to all of you.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: So what was the initial impetus for the economic and policy impact statement that your team prepared for the DC Council?
3: Well, I'm actually the council member that asked for this study a few years ago. We were debating in the city council the minimum wage here. so. Uh, There was a big movement to try to move the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. It actually did pass and it's gradually getting to that spot. Uh, It occurred to me and as well as my team that uh, the $15 an hour was sort of an artificial number. We we weren't sure what it really took to live in the District of Columbia. And I wanted to fully understand uh, just what it takes to meet your basic needs here. And in the context of a minimum income, uh, we could actually study both. So, really, what benefits we already offered? What kind of money was essentially on the table locally and federally? But also, what does it take to live here? And is $15 an hour enough, or not? And so, I asked our budget office, uh, under Jen Budoff's leadership, to initiate a study and really understand the impact in D.C. of our policies on on income and whether or not the people in our city. Um, Can actually live here and meet their basic needs with the amount of money that they are currently making and the number of benefits They currently are getting and so that really what is what kicked it off And I think that was two years ago
0: now the analysis of our current social safety net Notes that it's working better for some people than it is for others Who's doing relatively well under the existing safety net and, and who is not able to receive as much in the way of benefits?
2: Sure. So this is uh, Jen answering the question. Our study looked at the three most common household types in the district, of, and specifically the household types of uh, district residents who live under the federal poverty level. So we looked at single people, we looked at a uh, parent uh, and a child, and we looked at a parent with two children. And what we needed to look, what we needed to determine first, is how much does it really cost to live in the district? Because without knowing that, we won't have any kind of perspective on how much uh, support does the safety net provide. So, you know, when we looked at the amount of income that these households would need to afford their basic necessities in DC absent government supports, we found out that a single person would need to make around $18 an hour. A parent and a child or a two-person household would need to earn around $32 an hour and then a uh, parent with two children would need to earn around $47 an hour. And that's, you know, a lot of money. I mean, and, and especially for the households with children, um, the primary drivers of this high cost of living is housing and childcare. When we pivoted and we looked at the safety net that is provided to residents of the District of Columbia. You know, in the district, we have legislated a very robust safety net and households with children technically can receive enough support from the safety net to cover their basic needs, whether, you know, food, uh, shelter, transportation, childcare, so forth and so on. There still is a pretty significant gap for single people in the district where the safety net does not provide sufficient supports to meet their basic needs. However, you'd notice that I spoke about, or I mentioned whether or not households were eligible. Just because a household is eligible to receive a safety net support doesn't mean that they will receive it. You know, for example, housing vouchers are not entitlements, child care vouchers are not entitlements, things like that. So in many, many cases in the district, households, um, even though their income may qualify for a particular safety net, they don't receive it. And when they do not receive that safety net, there's often a pretty significant gap between the income that they would need to earn and what they actually earn.
0: So was that then part of the motivation for looking specifically at a a minimum guaranteed income, the idea that while programs exist because they're not being accessed, that effectively people didn't have that support and this could be perhaps a better way of achieving that goal?
2: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I can, and if Council Member Grasso wants to say anything, but, you know, a lot of times people, or, or it, throughout, the, throughout the country and throughout the world, people are looking at basic income and minimum income as a way to uh, resolve job loss through automation. I think that from the district, we looked at it from a perspective of poverty alleviation and what we can do in the district to help residents that Um, are unable to earn enough income to support themselves uh, without any kind of, you know, safety net or government benefit.
3: Uh, You know, and I I agree with Jen, and the fact is that when we started this process, it was a very simple question, and over the time, we evolved to say, look, this is really an analysis of kind of two-part. Is our safety net big enough? Does it really cover all of the people who are struggling in the city? And also, is the wage enough? Are we paying enough to people in the minimum wage effort? And it really evolved to that. And we, you know, as you can see from what Jen was saying, the the safety net is actually pretty robust in the District of Columbia. uh, But there are gaps and there are significant gaps for families who and people who don't take advantage of the full safety net. And I think that was the, the, the thing we got out of this. And then I'll just note also that there's a huge conversation happening in the city around the concept of gentrification and what's happening with mobility of long-term residents here. It's a small jurisdiction, has uh, surrounded by fairly wealthy counties, and people are struggling. And, and when they can't stay here, what does that mean to them? And you know, ultimately, if they can't stay here because they can't make ends meet, because we don't have uh, high enough wages or we don't have a strong enough safety net, then that's something that the council and the mayor have to address.
1: So the interaction between a potential basic income and our existing means-tested programs has come up a lot. And your analysis introduced some issues that, you know, in terms of how those two interact. So let's bring in Susanna and John, the primary authors of the study. Could you explain some of the issues revolving around introducing a basic income on top of our existing means-tested programs? Sure.
4: Um, This is Susanna. So as Jenna and David Uh, and Council Member Grosso just mentioned, we're very proud of our uh, social safety net and we provide a lot of programs that are unique to the district and a lot of programs that we provide jointly with the federal government. Um, To put this into context, in 2016, DC appropriated about $4 billion for social safety net programs. And of that $4 billion, the majority, 2.65 billion of it came from federal grants and payments. And what this means is, We work with the federal government when we're providing most of our social safety nets and benefits, and we can't go it alone. We don't really have the ability to alter our social safety net in order to provide a basic income or to more closely align with the basic income program. Consequently, this means that a lot of our social safety net programs have eligibility standards that are tied to income. And um, the most common threshold that's used for means-tested programs is the federal poverty level. And it could be that the program is eligible, you have to have 100% of the federal poverty level or maybe 200%, it really depends on the program. Um, To put this into context, uh, the federal poverty level for a one-person household is currently $12,060 a year. For a two-person household, it's $16,240 a year of income, and for a three-person household, it's about $20,000. So if we were to use a cash payment to raise households' income above the federal poverty level, we might achieve our goal of alleviating poverty in the district, but it would be really quite difficult for us to do this because it would mean that we would lose out on all that federal dollars that come in to support our existing social safety net program. So if you're... If your income is too high, if you earn more than the federal poverty level, you're not getting all those other social safety net benefits. And this is a particular concern when implementing a minimum income program um, at a state or city level because we don't have con- we don't have control of the national policy. We can get certain waivers and we can adjust our programs in in slight ways, but the fundamental way that social safety net programs are structured are based on income. And if we're raising people's income so high that they don't qualify for the other social safety net benefits, then we're really kicking the legs out of the under ourselves.
0: So you modeled out scenarios based on a negative income tax in which, at a certain income level, the government pays you instead of the other way around, and also a guaranteed minimum income in which you top up earnings to create an income floor across the district. You also looked at two different benefit levels, one at the federal poverty level, and another considerably higher, 450% of that level. Can you give us a sense of what sort of proposals seem to hold promise in your analysis and what were problematic aspects that arose?
4: Well, the decision about what holds promise or what is problematic is maybe more of a question for Councilmember Grosso to answer, um, but in terms of what is most feasible for us to implement. I would say that a universal basic income was the less feasible option. Well, first of all, it didn't really fit with what we were tasked to look at. Um, we were looking at ways to address inequality and a universal basic income, if it provides the same inc- the same payment to every household, yes, it might lift all boats, but it doesn't help between the the richest and the poorest. And in DC, we do have significant issues with inequality. A universal basic income program is also, um, would be very expensive for us to administer, and it would be really difficult to implement. So, if we were to provide everyone in DC with a um, universal basic income equal to 100% of the federal poverty level, so again, that's about $1,000 per resident per month, that would cost us uh, just the outlay, about $7 billion, which is the same amount of money that we currently spend in local tax dollars. So we'd have to double our taxes in order to provide that benefit. If we were to to provide a benefit that's 450% of the federal poverty level for every household, the outlays alone would be $32 billion, which is four and a quarter times the size of our current operating budget. There's certainly some, you know, a lot of advantages to a universal basic income program. It doesn't have a social stigma attached with it. Um, It provides a a benefit for everyone and and it could really help. But what we found was a a negative income tax was a more feasible approach for the district to provide a minimum income benefit. First off, it's least likely to interfere with residents' eligibility for other federal social safety net programs. So negative income tax is something that we already provide. The earned income tax credit is done at the federal level, and we also provide a local EITC. And unless you're itemizing your taxes, your earned income tax credit benefit doesn't count against you for your, your eligibility for federal benefit programs. It's less costly to administer because we're doing it through the tax code and we already have the systems in place to issue benefits. And it's tied to earned income for the most part, so it's less likely to impact people's decisions to participate in the labor force. Um, Of course, there are certain downsides for it. If the goal is to help people who have weak connections to the labor force, uh, then we're not doing that through a negative income tax necessarily. So a recent Brookings study, for example, showed that the amount of federal spending that's gone to the poorest households has, has fallen significantly. In 1990, the federal spending was $48 billion, and by 2015, it was only $32 billion, um, and also we have problems with our existing earned income tax credit and take up rates and with that, those same problems be replicated through a negative income tax and that that is quite possible. So the IRS reported that about 28% of households in D.C. who qualify for the earned income tax credit don't receive it. And so we wouldn't want to replicate the faulty delivery methods that we already have into an expanded program.
1: So. Taking all that together, uh, council member, what are you thinking about in terms of how to move forward with some kind of program around financial security in Washington, D.C.?
3: I appreciate the question. It's probably the one that I grapple with the most since this report came out, because I don't think it's an easy path forward. And there are a couple ways um, that I've tried to think through it. And one is um, just uh, on the the basic uh, engagement of my colleagues, there's only 13 of us. Uh, I think for us to have a better understanding on the ground level of what it takes to live in the District of Columbia, uh, just what does it take? What are our residents dealing with on a daily basis is incredibly beneficial. So we can start to have uh, policy debates uh, around important issues of of taxes and benefits and wages um, that is based in some reality for the poorest of the poor. And and I think there's real value in that. And, And there's a commitment on this council to do that uh, in, in a meaningful way. We're a pretty progressive council. We care about people being able to stay in the district who have been born and raised here and who are struggling to make ends meet. So this is, I think, a forefront of people's minds now. We had, have been presenting it around the city and we'll continue to do that. Uh, the other thing for me, I think another angle, there's two more. One more is the is, well, what should the minimum wage be? Um, Should we go back to having a debate around living wages and we did have this debate a few years ago and it was resoundingly defeated uh, Because Walmart wanted to come here and said they wouldn't come here if we didn't actually if we actually passed the bill In fact the bill passed the council and was vetoed by the mayor and we didn't have the votes to override the veto Um, but the living wage debate I think has to be put back on the table at some point in the city and That is something that uh, can be done more readily because we have this uh, report here and so that becomes a conversation with the business community, a conversation with residents about taxes and and whether or not um, uh, we're going to be able to do more there. Finally, I think the third area that this raises issues for me is is just um, simply around expanding these benefits. Uh, you know, we can do that. We'll we'll have to do it on a slower basis, um, and um, the relationship to the federal benefits has to be involved in in, in that conversation. And unfortunately, um, we're tied to it at a meaningful level in more ways than one. But you know, as a city that is as strong economically as we are, and our abilities to to make decisions free of that kind of burden is important. And what I've said to my colleagues and to my team here is that we shouldn't uh, allow this report to keep us from engaging in a real, meaningful conversation about the needs of our residents simply because of the big price tag. The price tag is part of the reality, but it is not, and it shouldn't be a barrier to us having these very interesting and, I think, important conversations.
0: So, delving a bit more into the economic analysis, what sort of effects did you see on district-wide GDP and economic activity, and what were the aspects of the proposals that were driving those effects?
5: Yeah, thanks for the question. This is John McNeil. Um, So, we tried to model a couple different scenarios um, the idea was to provide a range of economic impacts that represented different ways you could implement a minimum income program so i'll just talk about the the two ends of the range and, and the economic impacts of those two scenarios at the most costly end of the range um, we modeled a scenario where we gave people a minimum income of the cost of what it takes to live in the district that's the estimate that we came up with in our report which is approximately 450 percent of the federal poverty level um, so with that and we also assumed in that scenario that everybody making below that income level would decline to work and instead get the benefit so that's that's a that's costly it's going to be about nine nine billion a year and uh, we would pay for that through increases in personal income uh, taxes and property taxes at the at the other end well I should say there's part of that scenario is that we we had to assume that there would be a loss of federal payments to the district in the order of 2.6 billion a year so that's the costly uh, scenario, the least costly would be to go with a negative income tax, providing a minimum income of the federal poverty level, where we assume no impact on people's work participation. So with those two ends, if you go with a more expensive uh, scenario, you can have an impact that's fairly significant. And we're talking about GDP growth would decline by 30% after 10 years. and Total employment growth would decrease by 36% after 10 years. Uh, so, uh, And if you look more closely at the uh, district employment in other words, um, what I mean, district resident employment, meaning jobs located in the district held by district residents at this, um, this more generous benefit level, at the 450% federal poverty level minimum income, you see uh, actual, actually the model predicts that um, district resident employment would drop from current levels after 10 years. So that makes sense if you think about the fact that the scenario assumes that people would decline to work. And instead get the benefit. So, those jobs that they were doing might be taken by non district residents. Also, the model predicts that there's going to be some economic migration so that people would, over time, move to outside the district where taxes did not increase. So, that helps explain why we get that result. And I'll just say so that the less costly end of the range, where we modeled a, an income level, with just the federal poverty level, um, you had a fairly de minimis impact on the economy. Uh, we're talking about basically a decrease in about 0.6% in GDP growth, a 2% decrease in total employment after 10 years. So that's fairly, relatively speaking, a fairly modest impact.
1: Yeah, we were interested in those findings because um, last year, as you may know, the Roosevelt Institute modeled the economic impact of a nationwide universal income program, and their findings actually showed a significant increase in national GDP from the enactment of such a program. Um, so. Do you have a sense of what led to the difference in your findings, where you saw a decrease in GDP and they saw an increase?
5: Yes, actually, yeah. Uh, it's a good question. We um, a couple of reasons actually why we have a um, and in, in the scenarios that we model, we have a negative impact on the industry economy. It sort of varies quite a bit in magnitude, but but um, and in contrast, the Roosevelt Institute study found a found a positive impact on GDP at the national level. So one reason that we have this difference is that. Um, we, we assume that there will be some impact on labor force participation. So that's in the three out of the four scenarios that we modeled, the fairly significant assumption that, that people would either decline to work or, or at least a 50% reduction in their um, participation in the workforce. So that's one reason. Another thing is that at our analysis, we have to assume there's some impact on federal payments to our locality. And that's because we're doing it at a, at a local level. And in, in the Roosevelt Institute study, they're looking at a nationwide analysis, and they, they did not assume any impact on, as far as I'm aware, I didn't uh, assume any impact on federal payments. So there's that. There's also, um, it, because we're looking at a minimum, minimum income program at the local level, we have to assume there's some ability for people and businesses to move outside of our local jurisdiction if it's cheaper to live outside. Uh, so with that, that, that accounts for why we see this economic migration effect and, and sort of a negative dampening effect on the district economy. if people If people decide that Hey, I'm I'm going to keep my job in the district, but I'm going to move to Maryland, Virginia. Uh, so th- there's that. that. That didn't that wouldn't happen when you're looking at things at a national scale, unless you wanted to assume people move to Canada or Mexico, to escape the tax. And lastly, one thing the Roosevelt study looked at that we did not was um, well, we didn't include any any uh, assumptions about distributional effects. So by that I mean you can assume that. Well, Basically, there's a lot of assumptions you'd have to make, and there's limited data, so we didn't try to assume any differences in spending behavior between higher-income households and lower-income households, and that is another difference between our analysis and the Roosevelt Institute study.
0: Interesting to see how those different assumptions going into the models can can have potentially very, very different outcomes, but but thank you for clarifying that. So. I'm curious, uh, and I think this is probably mostly for the council member, but for any of you who would like to answer, what do you see as the next questions that y'all should be exploring here around providing either providing a minimum income to district residents or just generally progress in this direction?
3: So this is Council Member Grosso again. And, you know, I think I kind of answered that question a little bit in my previous answer, but I'll I'll say a couple things differently. You know, actually, I believe that There needs to be further dissemination of this report throughout the city and into the public conversation that we're having, Um, and we need to elevate that a little bit and have it, kind of continue to have it out there in public. We've had good coverage locally by the press, um, but somehow or another it would be good to take this on the road in the city. The debate then, I think, puts the pressure back on the council members to be um, more thoughtful in these uh, issues. The other thing is I hope that the understanding of, of this report permeates everything we do in the budget process. And right now is when we're engaging in the budget debates in the city council. So the mayor is scheduled to send us her budget tomorrow morning, uh, depending on the snow. And we will get the budget and we will begin to have hearings with all of our agencies, over a hundred different entities in a bunch of different committees. And my hope is that my colleagues will take actually two kind of base approaches to these hearings this year that we've been discussing a lot as a group. Um, One is around the minimum income study and what does it take to actually live here and what can we do to make it a more of a reality for people to stay here. The other approach I'd like my colleagues to take, and I'm certainly committed to doing this, is talking about racial equity in our city. We have been Pushing more and more for our conversation to expand to understanding the difference between races, uh, especially when it comes to income, uh, and education, and just uh, housing availability in our city. So when we're in the housing committee, we're in the education committee, we're in the finance and revenue committee, all these committees. If we can focus our approach based in the kind of understanding that. It's not an equal city, that there are people that are struggling to make ends meet and that when there's a single person who's living in Ward 8, which is the poorest ward in our city, trying to make it, that person probably has to have two or three jobs. When somebody has a child, they probably have to have even more income. And let's just be honest about the reality that um, we think that our economy is above board. And we think that we see it all, but in reality, there is an underground economy that keeps this city moving forward the way it has been, and there needs to be more credit given to that economy. And then there needs to be a commitment to bringing whatever that economy is up to the forefront and having a real conversation about how we can support it.
1: So it's all really great stuff. I want to give each of you just a a chance to add any final thoughts that you want on this analysis or the conversation going forward or anything that we talked about.
2: This is Jen. Just just to put a sort of fine point on, you know, we looked at uh, implementation of uh, a basic minimum income um, from a state perspective, and you know, especially when you you know compare uh, you know this study to other places, the, the District of Columbia is very small. We're what 64 square miles? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. 12 miles across, and we have extraordinarily porous borders. So when we talk about the sort of displacement effect of higher income people leaving the district to increase taxes or, you know, the, the impacts on the GDP, a lot of that, the determination of that is, is, is because we are such a small locality and um, you don't see those kinds of effects when you have a report that looks at a policy like this from a national perspective.
1: All right, and um, Susanna or John, would you like to chime in?
4: This is Susanna. You know, one thing that we were really impressed when doing this analysis was to find just how many benefits that we have and that we what we do offer is quite incredible. Um, but it's hard to find these programs and it took us many months of research to actually find them and the eligibility standards were not easy to figure out. And I I would really like to see a follow-up study that looks at how how are people accessing these programs if we have all of them out there, but people who are in need can't get to them, um, either because they don't know about them, because they're too difficult to access, or um, for some other reason, then we're not doing our job. And so I think a follow-up study to look at who can access our social safety net programs and who can't would be a very valuable study and would really inform the debate moving
5: forward. This is John. One thing for people who are, might be interested, just um, a word about our model that we use. It's um, uh, We uh, purchased a license to the REMI model, Regional Economic Model. It's an economic model created by Regional Economic Modeling Incorporated. So it's a fairly well-known model. It's used by a lot of municipalities. Our version is tailored to the District of Columbia and the regional economy, uh, and that's that's what we use to do our analysis. That was Jen
1: Budoff, Council Budget Director for Washington, D.C., Councilmember David Grosso of D.C., and the two primary authors of the Economic and Policy Impact Statement that they produced, Susanna Groves and John McNeil. So I've always been struck, since I've been studying basic income more and more, the degree to which these social benefit programs we have already are never universally accessed. You always lose people, and the more complicated those programs are, the more hoops you have to jump through, you inevitably lose more people. And that that really stuck out to me in this study.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think one one of the appeals of a universal program, and obviously UBI particularly, is if everyone is always getting it, it is, guaranteed access because it's always there. And I, I mean, I, I do think that there's major steps that can be taken with existing programs to improve access, and, and we should be pursuing those. Because in a lot of cases, we we absolutely have the technology and processes to do better. But it is, at some point, a diminishing return. It's always, because more and more of a, at some point, a marketing challenge to make sure people are aware of what's out there. They, they mentioned in the discussion that that, that was some of the issues is people just didn't know programs existed. And so given that, you really, at, at some point, the, really the cost of, of making them available to everyone becomes, can become quite high. The other thing that I just found really, really interesting about this whole conversation is thinking about the differences between what it means to enact a program like this at the federal level and what it would mean to do it at a city or state level. Because, I mean, they made really important points about migratory effects and that it's a pretty big deal to move out of the country. It's much less of a big deal to move a couple miles across your city or state border in order to change potentially change your tax burden significantly. And so as we're thinking about how we might move towards basic income and, and seeing cities and states as places where we can have movement, we are going to have to deal with some challenges that that wouldn't necessarily be nearly as prevalent once we get to the national level. Yeah, and D.C. is a great microcosm
1: for that because so many people who work in D.C. live in Maryland or live in Virginia, and it, you know it's a pretty easy commute, and if you have the means, it's not hard to cross a border in either direction. And yeah, it is something we're going to have to think about because I've always assumed that cities and states are going to have to go first before we get... A f- federal program, just because that's the way these things tend to move. Also very interesting to see the specific analyses that they chose to do. I feel like it's a little bit of a different angle to go negative income tax and minimum income, as opposed to a
0: full universal basic income. It's just interesting to see these different models played out. I mean, I think their point about the concerns with a full basic income are completely legitimate for a similar reason, that if that's being then taxed away by the federal government and disqualifying people from all their other programs. Yeah, the yeah. It's just like that that just like is not a viable approach to take at that level. But it is, it's, yeah, I feel like on this face it's like, oh, why not UBI? And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's actually a a pretty good reason for it. The one thing that I that actually really stood out for me was their assumptions around labor force participation. Yeah. And I mean what was clear to that for me is that there still is no consensus on what's going to happen if, if we start doing this for people. As we talked about before, we've gotten some pretty good evidence in a direction that we wouldn't see drastic decreases in workforce participation if, if we did provide people with a, a universal basic income or, or guaranteed income of, of other sorts. Um, but in this case, it was, they, they looked at in certain situations half people will stop working. In other situations, all people will stop working. And that's something where clearly there needs to be more work done on, on the research side and on the communication side. If, if we do uh, believe, as I think the evidence seems to suggest, that we're not going to see a drastic decrease, we should, we should try to get firmer senses of, of what the impact actually is, and so as these analyses Happen more in the future, they don't have to assume that there's going to be a significant reduction in in how many people are are seeking employment if if that's not actually going to be what happens.
1: Right, and should be
0: noted that part of that is just
1: the sort of programs they were looking into, and it you know one was the four and a half times the poverty line. That's so over fifty thousand dollars for a single person. And yeah, if you are guaranteed $50,000, I can understand (laughs) dropping out of the workforce at that point. Whereas if it's, you know, like $500 a month, uh, you know, $6,000 a year, that's obviously a very different world. So it, it just goes to show that there's so many different ways of thinking about this. And it really depends on the ultimate world that we're looking toward once a program's enacted.
0: Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like listening to the Basic Income podcast, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your preference. And we always appreciate when folks tell their friends about this. We, we really get distribution through word of mouth to a large degree. So please do let anyone that you think might be interested know that we're out there. We'll talk to you next time.